0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out SoullessChurch.com. The Gospel of Mark is one of the four biographies on the life of Jesus, and out of all the biographies of the life of Jesus, Mark uniquely shows us really the humanity of Jesus and the way in which he lived as God in the flesh. As the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, the Gospel of Mark is just this clear insight and window into all things Jesus. Uh, as a community, we want to recognize our tendency to assume the way of Jesus. That's not just culture's thing. That's also Christian, a Christian thing. We just kind of go, oh, that's Jesus. Why? because well, I saw church people do that or say that or think that. Um, we want to always be bringing our lives back to center and the center of our lives as Jesus. And so Mark gives us that fresh insight into what he was really like. So appropriately, our study through the Gospel of Mark has been entitled The Way. We're just after the way of Jesus. What are God's ways really like? You know, sometimes we can settle for our own image of God in our heads rather than who God has revealed himself to be in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Um, and then also, we want to learn to live in the way of Jesus. And so Mark has been showing us that. And it is really all led up to this point in Mark 15. Last week, we looked at the abandonment, betrayal, arrest, and trial of Jehovah God, of Jesus. He's been deserted by his most loyal followers. They went from promising to die with him to falling asleep on him, to all-out denying him and forsaking him, leaving him alone. And he is now on trial. And in many ways, even, even despite all the promises that Jesus made and predictions of his death and resurrection, the disciples still very much have an earthly kingdom mindset to what Jesus came to do. They, they want Jesus, even after he resurrects, actually, the disciples are like, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, that's what's on their minds. And, and in many ways, it's almost like Project Messiah is failing. And I'm sure that's how they feel in this moment, especially a moment as dark and difficult as Mark 15. Uh, this morning, we are um, we're going to do things a little different. We're not going to have a scripture reading for two reasons. First reason is because of how many verses there are in Mark 15. Last week, Francesca got the crown of of the longest verses read in a scripture reading. It Took six minutes, it was well worth it. Uh, But this week, we're we're not gonna have a scripture reading um, for the sake of time and how long it is, but also because we wanna slowly walk through the pace and the narrative of Mark 15 together, one verse at a time. Uh, Mark 15, shows us, and we're looking at this each and every week, a different aspect of the way of Jesus. Mark 15 shows us the way Jesus died. I don't know why I'm already getting emotional thinking about this. Maybe it's just because of how much I've, I've been studying. But, you know, each week we've been looking at a different aspect of Jesus' way, the way he healed, the way he delivered, the way he responded, the way that he loved, the way he called I mean, if anything, what Mark shows us is that there's nothing more beautiful than the way of Jesus. It's really the way that we should all seek after. But as we know, Jesus' ultimate purpose and really the the ultimate focus of the gospel of Mark wasn't just for Jesus to model a certain way to live. Humans need more than a model of how to live. Humans need a Messiah who's going to die, who's going to die for sin who's going to die for separation between humanity and God. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 15. Um, It's the Christmas season, but this is sort of going to be a good Friday, Sunday morning. A good Friday, Sunday morning. It's it's going to be an interesting pace, too, because we've got uh, the crucifixion, his death this morning. Next week, we'll study his resurrection. The week after, we'll study his birth. Totally normal. That's usually backwards, but... Birth, death, resurrection. But, um, and so let's do this. Let's pray together. And then we're going to jump into this most important chapter uh, in the Bible. Um, Jesus, we come to you this morning with um, unified hearts. Whether or not we feel unified, we have unified lives this morning. Because we're all united here. With our, and with a need for you and for your salvation and for your cross. And so, God, we we pray that in that unity, you would meet us here. And whether the blood of your cross has already been applied to our lives or not, help us come deeper in our understanding of what has occurred here in this event, that we might be more cross shaped people, that we might have more cross-centered identities, that we might be rooted in who you are and what you've done. So this is the time now where we just ask really for humanity to get out of the way, for Andrew to get out of the way, for all flesh to just get out of the way. And we just invite the the fresh wind and power of your Holy Spirit to be the minister, to be the, the preacher. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to to connect with us in a way that you know we need, using your word, the greatest tool in your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The way Jesus died, you could say, is really the whole point of the Gospel of Mark. Everything in the Gospel of Mark has been leading up to this ultimate moment. The Gospel of Mark ultimately showcases Jesus as a servant who has his face focused on what his father has called him to do, which is ultimately, as he tells us in Mark 10, 45, to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus has been talking about this in almost every chapter and every teaching, that his ultimate goal is not to come to earth and be served, but to be a whole different kind of king who wins his enemies by giving his life and not taking theirs. It's amazing. The Son of Man comes to give his life a ransom for many. This is the focal point of Mark. It's the reason why there are 10 whole chapters in the Gospel of Mark for three years of Jesus' ministry and life. And then when you get to chapter 11 through chapter 16, there's eight days that the second, uh, really, half of this book is focusing on. The way that Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. Now, um, the the crucifixion of Jesus is more than just the central event of the Gospel of Mark. We know this. (laughs) The crucifixion of Jesus is the center point of human history. Okay, So I'm making that bold claim this morning, that this chapter and these events that we're studying here today are the most central uh, events in the history of the universe, That's bigger than the world, right? The universe, okay? This is a big deal. The the way the scriptures describe it even is that the cross wasn't some afterthought to the fall of man. The cross is not just like this little event that gets thrown into the story of history. But Revelation describes the blood of the lamb that was before the foundations even of the earth. That in creation, in history, everything is leading up to this moment here where Jesus, the son of God, is going to the cross. Now that, that's why the cross is so central to the Christian faith, and that's also why it should be so central to our lives. I think the Apostle Paul summarizes the centrality of the cross well here in 1 Corinthians 2 2 when he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that profound? Paul goes into a city, and as he's writing his sermon, he's tempted to come up with persuasive speech, like an engaging talk that he could, he could really use to capture the attention of people and sort of persuade them intellectually to make an intellectual decision to be a Christian. And there is a place to providing logical reasons to believe in God. But Paul goes, that's not ultimately, though, where the power is. Paul has learned in his ministry that if I lift up the Son, the Father's going to draw all men unto himself. And so Paul's like, I go into a town. When I went to Corinth, my message was simple. It's all you need to hear. That's how important the cross is. Jesus and his crucifixion. Just Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I came with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit through simplifying my message down to Christ and him crucified. This was not just the center of Paul's preaching. This was, we know, the center of Paul's life, and this should, too, be the center of our lives. When you get down to the very center of your lives, is this the event that defines you? When you strip away all the layers, all the titles, all the tasks, all the jobs, all the experiences you have, as a Christian, the question is, do you see the cross at the very center of who you are? The Bible teaches this in Colossians 1.19. Here's Paul again. Paul says, It pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness of God should dwell, and by Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. You see, the cross, this event here is the moment in time, the moment in history where you and I are reconciled back to God once and for all. We're brought back into communion and relationship with God. The cross is the hope of our salvation. But it's also more than that. As Christians, we know that the cross is also the goal of our sanctification. The cross is the hope of our salvation. But I love what Paul says here in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me the only kind of biblical christianity is a christianity that is fully defined and shaped by the cross not human performance not religious services not moral virtues alone but by the cross of jesus it's through the cross that i find my identity as one who's loved by god and it's through the cross that i find my identity as a christian you know, we're all being formed. We're all being transformed into the image of Jesus. But it's a cruciform shape that Paul says he's growing into. I, I want to die too. Paul says, I don't just want the cross to be something done for me. I want the cross to be the thing that people see in the way I live my life. That I'm dead too. That I'm cru- I, I love you in a sacrificial way. I bear the very image of the cross on my life. It, all of this to say, the cross is is at the center of the Christian faith. And so um, if there's any chapter in the Bible that we would really want to receive and learn from, it would be a chapter like this here in Mark 15 that shows us the way that Jesus died and really what occurred here in the crucifixion. So let's explore that together. You ready? Okay. Really getting great responses this morning. It's going to be okay. Let me take a sip of water. Let's try that again. You ready? Amen. Let's just pray again. Jesus, invite us deeper into your cross here as we look at what you did here in Mark 15. Amen. Amen. I want to observe three ways that Jesus gives his life and dies on the cross here in Mark 15. The first thing we see in Mark 15 is that Jesus died really historically, but also from the perspective of heaven, Jesus died innocently. This is the first thing that Mark wants us to see us about the truth of Christ's death and crucifixion, that Jesus doesn't go to the cross as a guilty criminal. He goes to the cross as a sinless, spotless lamb, as an innocent man. We see the account here, Mark 15, where we picked up. It says immediately in the morning, we left off on Thursday late evening, middle of the night. Um, Jesus is tired. He hasn't had any rest, and, the, and, and he's been arrested, and he's been beaten. At this point, Jesus is weakened physically. Um, the religious leaders, remember, are threatened by the hope and the message that Jesus brings because it's usurping and subverting their power, and, and so their goal is to remove him and destroy him, and they have, through Judas's help, arrested him, and they've put him on trial before their own ecclesiastical um, religious court. And they've declared him guilty of blasphemy because he said he's the son of God. Which is only a sin if it's not true. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that would be blasphemy for anybody in this room to say, Hi, I'm the Christ, the son of the blessed God. Okay? That's blasphemy. The only occasion where that isn't blasphemy is if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus is innocent here, but... His life is a threat to theirs. And so, of course, we see them bringing him on trial. But here's the problem. The Jews, they don't have the power within themselves legally at this stage in history to pronounce the death penalty on anyone. They cannot execute a death sentence. That's been removed by Rome that is presiding over Israel at this time. So what do they do? They have a consultation with their elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bind Jesus and they lead him away to deliver him. To Pilate. This is what they have to do. This is the second phase of Jesus' trial. The first phase is religious. The second phase is more legal and civil, and it involves the Roman government. They bring Jesus. In order to get permission to kill him, they have to bring him to a Roman official, and they have found this man, Pilate. Uh, who, by the way, up to only a a couple hundred years ago, there was no historic record of Pilate's existence. Did you know this? Archaeologically, there was nothing. In fact, a lot of people used the scripture's description of Pilate to kind of bash Christians and say, you know, you guys have a made-up book that that deals with made-up characters. And that was until archaeology successfully uncovered Caesarea Philippi and coins that had Pilate's inscription on them. Really cool how archaeology over and over again just proves the reliability of the Bible. So Pilate's a real dude, and he's not a great dude. We're going to find that, okay? Um, They bring him to Pilate to get that Roman, you know, that Roman clearance. But remember, they're not able to, like, really, um, I guess you could say, manipulate Pilate on the base of their religious frustrations with Jesus. Like, if they go to Pilate and they're like, Pilate, hey, Roman official, we're Jews. We want to kill this guy. Um, he's blaspheming. Pilate's going to be like, okay. Like, he doesn't care. So they sort of twist it around, and Luke's gospel tells us that when they come to Pilate, they're basically painting Jesus to be a rebel against Rome who's inciting riots and basically committing treason. And, and they're kind of using this language, right? He, he self-proclaimed calls himself the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate, you don't want another Jewish king running around. That might threaten your position. That might not look good to Caesar, all right? On your yearly evaluation, where he's like, hello, let's talk about how you've been doing, Pilate, all right? That's not going to look good. This is a problem. So, Pilate is going to investigate him. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, you got to read John chapter 18 and really see a more detailed account of this Um, discussion between Jesus and Pilate. John gives us a little bit more detail. When when Pilate, and there's Jesus standing before him, when Pilate is asking him, are you a king? Um, Jesus' first response is really cool. He says, "Are, are you genuinely curious, or is that just a question that you're supposed to ask me? I really love that. I really love that Jesus presses on every human heart to think Thoughtfully, right about who Jesus is. Is this something you're wondering about yourself? I mean, I wonder, have you ever genuinely thought who is Jesus? Is he really the king of the universe? Is he really the king of kings? Jesus presses in on that. Pilate asks him again, and Jesus gives a simple response. He goes, It's just as you say. Ding, ding, ding. You got it right. I am who you say. I am the Messiah. Now, um, the chief priests continue to accuse Jesus of many things, but he answers nothing. This is an interesting exchange here. Jesus hasn't committed any crimes. He's told the truth, and, and, and yet still the chief priests in front of Pilate there are now accusing Jesus. They're like, well, he did this, and he did that. And, and you would imagine that Jesus would begin to defend himself and try to explain away the crowds that are trying to condemn him, but it says he answers nothing. This, I can't tell you how uncommon this would be. Maybe you get the impression that this is something that Pilate has never seen before. That someone's on trial and and the aggressors want him killed, and he has a chance to play their game and argue back and defend himself. Jesus knows that there's nothing he can say here. They've heard him speak openly. Jesus has given every best argument to trust who he is, not even just with his words. I mean, more like, you know, the the evidence of, like, him bringing dead people back to life. Like, that's usually, like, that'll seal the deal, usually. It's like, oh, yeah, he's the Messiah. Let's just give up. He just brought that dead guy back to life. I mean, Jesus has given every reason, but still, they don't believe. They're accusing him of many things. He answers nothing. Pilate goes, do you not respond at all? Do you answer Nothing. See how many things that they testify against you, but Jesus still answered nothing, and then Pilate marvels. So, so Pilate is looking on, and later he'll tell us that he knows what's up with these religious leaders, that they're, they're envious of Jesus. Pilate's making his own assessment. He's asking Jesus, I mean, are you this king that they're claiming you claim to be? And Jesus says, Yes. And then he has all these accusations coming against him, and he's just standing there innocently not playing their game. When you read the Gospel of John, you find that Pilate unequivocally determines that Jesus is an innocent man. He's not the criminal that the religious leaders are saying he is. In John's Gospel, Pilate comes out, he says, Behold, I bring him out to you, and you may know that I find no Fault in him. He says this three times. Okay, this is the way that Pilate tries to wash his hands. He'll literally do that. But he's trying to wash his hands of the guilt of being responsible for this man's crucifixion, which, by the way, you you can't wash that off. You can't wash your sin away. This is why this man will go to the cross. But Pilate declares. I mean, this is a, a trial, and Pilate concludes... I mean, no question, this man is guilty, or or not guilty. He's innocent. He hasn't committed any crimes. You know, Scripture describes Jesus as the spotless Lamb of God. This is God in the flesh. The Bible says that Jesus, like a man, was tempted in all points, like you and I are. Anybody ever been (laughs) tempted once or twice this morning? Okay. We're all tempted. We all face the tendency to not walk with God, but to do the opposite, to rebel against God, to give in to our own idolatry, to to place ourselves as the authority over our lives. Jesus in his humanity faced temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but he was without sin. He overcame the temptation. Only Jesus has this record. Do we know this? Okay, There is two communities of people in this world. There's the community of humanity who sins and falls short of of the glory of God. Welcome to that community. And there's Jesus. And there's no way to bridge that gap. The, The gap between those two groups is so eternally far that this Jesus had to come to earth to be our sinless sacrifice. So Jesus is without sin. You know, Peter tells us this. Peter says this to those that are enduring hardship from their slave owners. We could also make that synonymous with employers. Sometimes those are very synonymous. But he says, what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults if you take it patiently? Like if you commit a crime and you receive a consequence, it's like it's not something to boast in to be like, I'm so patient for enduring what I deserve. It's like that doesn't exist. But when you do good and suffer, that's a whole nother. You ever had that happen before? You ever suffered for doing the right thing? He says, if you take that patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called as a Christian. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you and I should follow in his steps. Who committed, what? No sin. Nor is deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. He was silent. What he suffered, he did not threaten. But Jesus, this is what we see happening here in the story. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. Peter's not talking about Pilate. (laughs) Jesus commits himself to the Father. What a thing to do when you are persecuted. When you suffer for doing what's right, commit yourself to the righteous judge. Say, God, I might not ever get justice here on earth, but you're the ultimate judge. I commit my life to you. In a lot of ways, from eternity's perspective, Jesus isn't on trial here. Pilate's on trial. The religious leaders are on trial before a righteous judge. But we still see the same event. Innocent Jesus being purposely, manipulatively attacked and targeted by the Jews. And here's the, the expression that it's used over and over again. They're just testifying against him. Innocent Jesus. But Pilate concludes, I find nothing wrong with this man. Um, you know, one of the most interesting accounts of this and kind of what's going on with sinless Jesus, innocent Jesus, and Pilate is found in Matthew's gospel. I just want to read this to you. This is really interesting. Matthew twenty seven nineteen says that when Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife comes up to him, okay, and says, have nothing to do with that innocent man. Do you know why she says this? She says, I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So all signs in every way are port- pointing to the innocence of Jesus. Um, the moral of the story here is listen to your wife. You know? <laughs> Point know one, okay. All ladies are like, "Mm." (laughs) Um, significant. Jesus is innocent. Pilate's own wife gets intel from heaven saying, "Have nothing to do with this guy." Pilate declares him faultless. This is who Jesus is. Not just. Can we say this by the way? Jesus is not just guiltless. Jesus is glorious. Like, this is what makes it so baffling that people would be coming against him. You literally have to blind your eyes to the glory of Jesus to get to the place where you're accusing him of sin. And this is what's going on. Now, look look at what happens as the story continues. Um, It tells us this. The next thing, write this down. We see Jesus doesn't just die innocently. Jesus also died. This is a very important observation here. We see Jesus died substitutionally. Which spell check helped me, because for some reason I made that word substitutionarily. (laughs) Unnecessary syllables. Okay. Jesus died substitutionally. As a substitute. It tells us, as the story continues, And at the feast, Pilate was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they Requested. This is an interesting event. This is part of history and tradition. Pilate at the feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he would do a solid for the Jewish people, and he would release one of their prisoners. He would let them go scotch-free, regardless of whatever crime they've committed, and it was um, per their request. They could request what guilty prisoner and what guilty criminal could be released. And so we have on... The first block, we have the first criminal and his name is Barabbas, Barabbas. There was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. I'm going to come back to this. I want you to just file this away. This is us. We're chained with Barabbas as the guilty ones, as his fellow rebels. But here's Barabbas, and he's a man who's committed murder in the rebellion against Rome. This guy is the opposite of Jesus. Jesus is the epitome of innocence. Barabbas is the epitome of guilt and sin. Um, That sin that goes even back to Cain and Abel of taking a human life. The name Barabbas is really interesting. Uh, Matthew's version, if you go a little bit deeper into the Greek, his name is literally Jesus Barabbas. Yeshua, a common name in that culture. The name Barabbas, we know in the Bible, whenever you see like Simon Bar-Jonah, that means the son of Jonah. Barabbas is literally son of Abba. Abba's son of the father. Isn't this interesting? This is a counterfeit Jesus, son of the father. This is an example of someone who's guilty and is their own savior. And this is the one that Pilate presents to the crowd. The multitude, crying aloud, began began to ask Pilate to do just that he has always done for them, releasing them a prisoner. But Pilate answered them and said, do you want me to release to you king of the Jews? Pilate's like, this is my way out. I don't have to be guilty of this guy. I don't want him to die. He's an innocent man. I mean, I'm going to try to wash my hands, but there's really no way for me to evade the guilt and the responsibility. If this guy gets crucified, it is on me. So here's a chance for me, in some ways, to to get out of this situation. So he presents Jesus. He's like, "Here's an option." All right, and we can we can tend to like over. Um, overthink our, our own lives and, and imagine that we are more righteous than this crowd of people, if we were presented with an opportunity of Jesus or the guilty sinner, of course we would release Jesus. It's like the thing we do and we're like, come on, Adam, why would you eat that fruit? Okay? if I'm not often tempted with apples. Okay? But when you look into the human condition, you see the same tendencies in our lives each and every day. How many opportunities are there to allow Jesus his rightful place? And we reject that. We might not eat from a tree, but we, we choose to be our own source of good and evil all the time. We choose to push God aside and get our own elbow room from him every single day. See, we're all in Adam. We're, we're all guilty of the same crimes. But here's the opportunity. The opportunity is presented for Jesus to be released. Now, Pilate knew this. He knew the chief priests handed him over because of envy. They were jealous of Jesus' ministry following success. And they really didn't like the whole thing where he's disrupting their lives, especially the kicking over table thing. It's like, I like that table, Jesus, okay? Like, he's really, really causing a ruckus to their religious corrupted system. They're not happy about that. And so Pilate knows what's going on, but the chief priests stir up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. You see, back in old times... Um, powerful figures in culture could, could stir up crowds of people to do crazy things. Okay, that's, a, that's all I have to say about that. All right. <laughs> Pilate answered again and said, What do you want me then to do with him that you call king of the Jews? And you imagine, too, the religious leaders are murmuring and whispering the exact method of Jesus' edu- uh, execution. God beautifully working this together for good because he would be pierced for our transgressions. So they cried out again, crucify him. Notice there's no logic to why they want Jesus killed this way. Just like there's no logic whatsoever to rebelling against a perfect, loving, glorious, beautiful God. Pilate says to them, why? What what evil has he done? I've inspected this guy and I found that there's no fault in him. Yo, my wife had a dream, yo. Like, I, he's innocent. He's a just man. What, what has he done? And notice that, like, this is usually what someone does when they don't want to think about their faulty argument. They just say it louder. It's like you're just increasing volume. You're not increasing substance in what you're saying at all. And they yell again, crucify him. You just imagine the same mob that was certainly present there on Palm Sunday, screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. And most think that those were potentially the Galileans, and these are the locals there in Jerusalem. Who knows? But now another mob is there screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. And here's Pilate. See, back then politicians were also like this. Really weird time. They wanted to gratify the crowd. Whatever it takes for me to keep this position, and that usually involves me keeping you happy, So he, and I want you to see this, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus. After he had scourged him with the the infamous cat of nine tails of rock and bone and glass, Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. Now, if there is ever and has ever been a picture of our salvation, In the Bible, let it be this account here. Um, And the connection's simple, isn't it? Like, if you haven't figured it out yet, um, I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. You and I are standing before Jesus, guilty rebels. And it's interesting note there to say that they're chained rebels. We're the ones deserving of death. We're the ones who are guilty before God. We're the ones who deserve to be headed where we're headed, to receive the judgment that our sins deserve. And here's a beautiful display of a substitutionary swap between Barabbas and Jesus. You know, if if anybody could ever say that Jesus died for them, it's Barabbas, right? Like, Jesus literally is treated as the guilty Barabbas so that Barabbas can be treated like innocent Jesus, And in theology, this is called the great exchange of the gospel. That on the cross, you have this event occurring known as substitutionary atonement. See, you and I could never, despite our own save ourselves. There's no way to work our crimes off. There's no way to come off the the block of judgment that we deserve. The only hope that you and I have to be right with God, both presently and eternally, is if God himself in some way with great love would be willing to switch places with me. Would he be willing to switch places? places with me. And Paul says this is exactly what happens on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be Barabbas, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the great switcheroo. It's the great exchange, the hope that Jesus takes my sin upon himself. I don't work in some way, to make my sins go away. But literally, the picture in the Old Testament is that of I I receive Jesus' clean garments, and and we become righteous, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it, and because he fully paid for our sins. And and there there needs to be a revival of this in the hearts of Christians. Christians who know who they are in Christ. Humility is knowing who we're not, apart from Jesus, like all that we are apart from him, that takes humility. Some of us need to learn that too. Like I need to know who I am apart from him. But Christian maturity is learning all that you are in him. Gaining a grasp on your identity so that when you're asked this question, even this morning, are you righteous? There should be a part of you that says apart from Jesus, no, but in Jesus, yes. Absolutely. I'm standing right before God eternally and forever, not because of my works, but because of the better works of someone else, the sufficient works of Jesus, he switched places with me. This is the gospel. He didn't have to, but he did. All those things I'm guilty of, all those sins I run back to, Jesus said, I'll take it upon myself. Here, receive my righteousness and I'll receive your filth and your sin. I will pay for your sin. The only one who could is the innocent man, Jesus. Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Amen? The substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Write this next one down. Jesus died shamefully. Jesus died innocently. And as an innocent man... He died substitutionally for you and I on the cross. Taking what we deserve, God treated Christ. Jesus was treated as though he were you and me, guilty sinners like Barabbas, so that, so that the Father would treat us as though we were Jesus in his eyes, clothed in his righteousness and not our own. It must be mentioned, as we see here in the text, that Jesus' death was a shameful death. Jesus dies shamefully. Right after this moment, as Jesus is scourged and delivered to be crucified, it says the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they begin to mock Jesus. They clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. Try to process this moment in history. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed, which in another gospel, we see that they first put that in his hand as a scepter to mock him. And then they, you imagine, pulled it out of his hand and hit him with it. And they spat on him. And and they bowed their knee, worshiping him. Philippians tells us that one day they're really going to do this, by the way. But they bow their knee and they worship Jesus. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him. They put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Jesus was shamed for our sins. I mean, can you think about this? Can you think about this in the story of history? I mean, shame is the kind of thing that humanity brought into the world. One of the biggest issues with our sin is not just the sins we commit, but the shame that follows. And from the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve hiding from God in shame, covering themselves. That's the picture of their own efforts and their own works, trying to cover over the thing that they're ashamed of, their own mistakes. Their eyes are now open because of their crimes. Thousands of years later, God himself would come into this world and he would bear a shame. He would wear some clothing that would shame him more than any fig leaves. I want you to think about this for a second. Whatever shame you felt, Jesus has felt shame. He took your shame. He absorbed your shame. You know, the Bible says this in Hebrews 12, too, that we should look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, what? Despising the shame. Your, your sin doesn't just go on Jesus. Your shame does, too. Guilt means, I did this. Shame means, I am this. I I, I identify as this. It's a cloud of guilt that identifies you to your very being. And Jesus wore that shame on the cross. He despised the shame of the cross. He sat down at the right hand of God. I mean, just process this for a second. The shame that Jesus endures at the cross. Um, I want you to notice why Jesus endured the shame. It says that he did this, or really maybe better is how he endured the shame as he despised it. He had his eyes fixed, it says, on the joy set before him. Isn't that great? Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. His eyes were set the whole time on the joy set before him. This is what enabled his endurance. What was the joy set before Jesus? Well, it kind of depends. There's a lot of joy that was set before Jesus. I imagine first the joy of his father's pleasure. To hear his father say, well done, my son. To please his father, what joy. There's no greater joy than knowing that God is pleased with you. Um, This is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. Let's say, too, the joy that was set before Jesus as he's going through the shame. What about the joy of, of our salvation? Did you ever think about that, that Jesus had you on his mind and the joy of you being redeemed in him as he was going to the cross? I know he died for the whole world, but no, he died for you. He took your sin. Ultimately, I I like to think too of Jesus' joy that was before him. You know, Jesus knew the resurrection was coming, he knew it. It it didn't make his shame any less, it didn't make the pain of the cross um, any easier. But Jesus, I love, remember last week, he gave the disciples a rendezvous point after he dies. He said, Guys, I'm going to die. Meet me in Galilee after I rise. Like, he knows his resurrection is coming. Jesus knows, listen, that victory is following his death. That's what his eyes were on. The joy that was set before him was, listen, ultimately, the spiritual conflict between darkness and light was going to be won once and for all. That's what Jesus saw. This is important to remember, um, that the backdrop of these events is a spiritual conflict, I think the passion of the Christ does a really beautiful job, if you've seen that film, depicting the evil presences of spiritual hosts and powers in those moments of the garden, in the moments of the crucifixion. Um, And in a lot of ways, you would imagine that as Jesus is being shamed, darkness is rejoicing. There there was no death more humiliating and shameful than crucifixion. The nudity involved, the desperation involved, the, the public display the agony, the weakness. And you imagine in a lot of ways, the powers of darkness are thinking, we did it. This was the right, we've killed the Messiah. Now, what's really cool is that, did you guys know this? That sometimes the way that things look from Earth's view is different than how things look from Heaven's view. Have you notice that? You ever got like Heaven's view intel on your thing? You're like, oh, there's more to Earth. I like this. There's an Earth view and there's a Heaven view. Now, this is what's beautiful. Colossians gives us. The heavenly view of the cross. In Colossians, it says that Jesus on the cross disarmed principalities and powers. And and though it looked like Jesus was the public spectacle on the cross, this is so subversive and amazing. This is how, like, you know, the best Marvel movie ends, you know, where it looks horrible. And then there's Tony Stark showing up from the dark, okay? This This is such a beautiful display of triumph. Jesus makes a public spectacle over the enemy triumphing over them in it. The, the idea here is that on the cross, Jesus broke the power of darkness that had a hold on humanity. There was a hold that the power of darkness had on humanity. And even still today, there are many people held under the power of the wicked one. Yet on the cross, I love this incredible language, Jesus disarmed the enemy. Okay, it's, it's, you, wanna, you guys want to hear a Bible joke? Okay, perfect timing for it. Do you guys know why Satan was a serpent? Because a serpent? Because he was defeated and disarmed. Get it? No feet, no arms. That's a. Back to your reg- regularly scheduled broadcast here. Um, this word disarmed is so amazing. It literally means he stripped the enemy down to nothing. His one weapon, which was death, is being used against him by Jesus as he is dying for our sins. The language that Paul is using here is richly historical in Roman. In that culture, whenever a Roman general would enter into some sort of culture or city and they would overtake the kingdom, what they would do is they would kill off half the army. And then that Roman king or that Roman emperor would march back into Rome and he would have his army with him leading the way. And then behind his army, he would have the defeated army and then the defeated king with his head down in irons walking back. And as they would walk back in this parade of shame, the, the people of, the, of, of the, the city would be pelting them with stones, spitting on them and mocking them like, you know, you're defeated, you're defeated. Like, think of like a, uh, you know, an NBA championship parade kind of a thing, but for defeat, okay? Like it, it's a total victory lap that involve great shame of the enemy. And this is what Paul is alluding to. He's like, on the cross, Jesus took Satan, put him in his rightful place behind him. And in that rightful place, he has to march and admit his defeat. He's lost. Jesus made a public spectacle in such a powerful way. Write this next one down. This is also significant. Jesus doesn't just take shame on the cross. As he is made a public spectacle, he beautifully makes a powerful public spectacle of the enemy, defeating the one tool the enemy had. But Jesus also died. This is significant. Jesus died painfully. Something I was meditating on that something that Mark shows us here is not just Jesus' death, but his suffering. Jesus didn't just die. Jesus suffered great pain. It tells us that, as was a custom occurrence for crucifixion that they compelled a certain man Simon a Cyrenian not a Jew they found a man named Simon Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus in case you're like if you know Rufus this is his dad okay now actually that's a fun note there's a man named poor guy there's a man named Rufus in Romans 16 and he's a member of the church so so many people have have kind of speculated that this could be Mark writing it to the church and he's like you know Rufus, who's sitting in the back left? This was his dad. Maybe this is how Rufus, and still still got the name Rufus, and I can't say it another three times without laughing, but this could be how he came to Christ, and also his own brother, Simon, or his own brother, Alexander. But this man, Simon, was the father of these guys. As he was coming out of the country, passing by, they compel him to help Jesus bear his cross. This was a part of crucifixion. The guilty... Um, criminal would, would walk, take his march down that green mile, and he would have to bear the beam of the cross on his back, weighing somewhere of 75 to 100 pounds on his shoulders. Remember, this is after he's been beaten up all night, weakened beyond belief. He's been scourged 39 times, he, he's, which usually kills the person. So it was an act of mercy not to go for that 40th lash. And here's Jesus, unable to bear the weight of this in his humanity. Simon comes and helps, and they bring Jesus to the place called Gotha, which is translated place of the skull. I want you to notice really what Mark is highlighting. Jesus is alone. Where's his disciples to bear his cross? We think of the physical pain of the cross, but the emotional pain of Jesus' loneliness in this moment is unimaginable. He's dying by himself. If not four, we'll see a few of his female faithful followers that stuck with him. It tells us that they attempted to give him um, a drink that would help in some way ease the pain. They gave him wine mingled with murder drink, but he didn't take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And that was the third hour, and they crucified him. They drove nails through his wrists. They drove nails through his feet with a crown of thorns on his head. They hoisted him up to experience the most excruciating pain that one could ever imagine. Did you know that the word excruciating literally means from the cross? They crucified him with excruciating pain. Jesus is suffering. The the main way that Life would be lost through crucifixion is suffocation, asphyxiation, this inability to get a breath. Because you'd have to pull yourself up with any strength of your legs and your shoulders to get that breath. And so often if someone was hanging on a cross and they were failing to perish, what would the Romans do? They would break their legs. We know Jesus' legs were not broken. That's actually a messianic promise but he's crucified here in this moment, bearing excruciating pain and then the shame of the inscription of he who was the king of the Jews. Jesus promised that his death would involve his suffering. He told his disciples, I'm coming just to both suffer and die. Um, This is a significant truth of history, that God didn't just come and instantly die for sin. Did you ever think about this? It wasn't a quick execution. It was a slow death of suffering. You know, Jesus here is bearing the full experience of the human condition. The human condition involves sin. It involves shame. And I don't think I need to do a lot of convincing to tell you that the human experience involves suffering. And here's Jesus, God in the flesh, suffering. You know, there's a a great book on the logical reality of God written by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And each chapter deals with one of the main objections to the Christian faith that he's discovered through pastoring in a secular, you know, post-Christian city like New York. And there's one chapter called simply, Why or How Could a Good God and Powerful God Allow Suffering? And there's this incredible section where Tim Keller, after talking through the mystery in some ways, we can give some answers, but there is a sense of mystery to this. But I love this quote from The Reason for God, where Tim Keller says this, whatever the reason for why God allows evil and suffering to continue, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we know what it cannot be. This this rules it out. The cross of Jesus rules out this reason for suffering. It cannot be that God doesn't love us. It cannot be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. And so maybe today you're wrestling with God, why would you allow this? When you look at the cross, be reminded, I'll tell you what I'll tell you the number one reason it isn't. It isn't because he doesn't care about you or love you. Look at the cross and see how Jesus himself felt what humanity felt and And beyond what humanity could ever feel on the cross. Write this down. We're closing up here. Jesus died willingly. Jesus died willingly. Jesus died innocently, substitutionally. Jesus died shamefully. Jesus died painfully. And Jesus died willingly. Notice what happens here. They crucify him with two robbers on his right and on the left. So the scripture is fulfilled which says, and he's numbered with the transgressors. And those who pass by, blaspheme them, wagging their heads. These are those religious leaders likely saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They're teasing him. They're mocking him. If you're so powerful, then dismount yourself. Take yourself off the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others which they acknowledge, right? But he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him were reviling him. So Jesus is on the cross and, and the gist of the mockery he's receiving is if you're so powerful, why do you look so weak? And there's two options for this. Either one, weakness. Or two. Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. It's having the sword to the enemy's throat and having the ability to unleash the lethal blow, but with but but um, restraining. This is the greatest display of meekness in the history of the world. Jesus with all this, this is the the power here on the cross is the same power that created the world all things were made through him all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus um, yet he withholds that power why because of love because of love for you because of love for me there's a classic old Gospel song that says it wasn't the nails. You ever heard that one? It wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love. Jesus told his followers. He said, Listen, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Nobody takes it from me. Okay? Jesus' life isn't being taken from him. He says, I'm laying it down. I'm laying down my life willingly. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to come off this cross. I have the power to take it again. This command I received from my father. Paul tells us, here's what was happening. God was demonstrating, Jesus himself demonstrating his own love towards you and me, and that while we are still sinners, Christ hung on the cross. He bled and died all the way for you. He didn't, he didn't, there wasn't a moment where he's like, okay, that's enough. This person, they're not worth it. Their salvation, my, you know, think about the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice here. I'll invite the band to come up here as we close and we turn towards the Lord's table here for this last one. Uh, we see that Jesus dies completely. Um, Jesus, in a display of meekness and power, Remains on the cross as a, at a display of love for you and me, because he knew it was only through this sacrifice that you or I could be saved. So we just want to observe the finished work of the cross here. It says now when the sixth hour have come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I wish I can get into this. There's some great uh, historic record of darkness of a a solar eclipse that occurred around this time, and a massive earthquake. But at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is pulling right from Psalm 22, the Messianic Psalm, and I love that he's not just toughened up, he's processing the reality of his pain before his father, and he's saying, God, he doesn't even call him father, he says, God, where are you? Some of those stood by, when they heard that, said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now, Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi. They might have heard, Elijah, Elijah. And so, they're all messed up. This happens all the time, by the way. People mishear Jesus. Hello. Okay. (laughs) Then someone ran with a, a sponge filled up, full of sour wine. They put it on a reed. They offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed. His last. Luke tells us that Jesus gives up his spirit. And when he cries with a loud voice, do we know what he says? He says, To tell us, die. He says, It's finished. Those who are in me don't have to work a single ounce of effort for God's love because Jesus paid it all. He says, It's finished. And he, here's the result the veil of the temple. That veil that separated humanity from access to God, except for that high priest who could enter at that one appointed time, the holy of holies, that veil is, of the temple is torn into from top to bottom. Can I remind you today that the temple of access to God and the veil that separated you from God has been torn? It's it's accessible to you. God is available to you. That's why Paul says this so beautifully in Ephesians. He says, for through Jesus, we uh, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. This is what Jesus accomplished. He completely dies. He gives up his life. The temple veil is torn. And I love the picture there. It's not torn from the bottom up. It's torn from God to man, from the top to bottom, so that you and I here today we can come before God and just be recipients of the cross. Here's the thing that you and I need to complete to what Jesus has done here. You ready? Thank you. Thank you. That's what we bring. It's not this and that and that work and that effort. I just need to repent harder. Then God will forgive me. I didn't cry enough. You now you see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not about what you or I do, but it's all about what God has done through his son, Jesus, reconciling us to him, giving us access, becoming our substitute, bearing our shame, overcoming our enemy. All the while, in the midst of this tragedy, heaven was triumphing for you and I. And so we want to close here with a time of reflection on the cross. You have some communion elements there on your seats and Uh, This is the meal that the Lord Jesus has given us, his church, to constantly remember the cross. Jesus said that as you gather in my name, you drink this cup and you eat this bread and you do this, he said, in remembrance of me. Jesus knew that we would be prone to forget the cross. He knew that we would be so prone to making the cross something that got us into relationship with God. But almost leaving it as that, you see, the cross needs to be at the very center of our lives, even here today. We want to come before God and get our eyes off of our performance. We want to come before God and confess our sin to him, knowing that he is faithful and just to meet us with forgiveness. Because he's paid for our sin fully on that cross. He completely bore your sin. He didn't partially die for you. He died for you in full.